Hello, hello, everyone. This is Christina Singh, and you are listening to the Growing Woman Podcast. I am so, so thrilled to have you all back for another episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I cannot wait to dive in with our guest this week, um, who is Laurel Carpenter. And before we dive in, I just want to, as always, thank you all so, so much for your support of this show. Every single person listening, commenting, liking our Instagram page, and really spreading the word about the show. Thank you so much um, to the folks leaving us a review on iTunes um, and on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support. Um, we're just so grateful. So keep the word going and growing. <laughs> and I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. So our guest this week is Laurel Carpenter. She is the co-founder of Pearl Consulting NYC, a content creation agency helping small businesses and solopreneurs find the gem in every story. Love that. Pearl Consulting NYC specializes in business blogging, copywriting, resume and LinkedIn revision, and social media management for Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Her co-founder and partner, Charles Harold, is a freelance writer with over 20 years of industry experience who has written extensively for the New York Times, About.com, and USA Today. Welcome, Laurel. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to do this. This will be my first interview ever on a podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited and honored that I get to be the first one. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, and, you know, the name of the show is Growing Woman. So we are diving into all of the ways you've evolved. And I know you have had such a a personal evolution in your career and for yourself. And you're very open to trying new things and doing new things in your life. And so I really wanted to talk to you about that. And, but first I want to start with, where are you from? Who are you? Where did you grow up? And how did you come into your first part of your career? So I was born in Schenectady, New York in upstate New York. And um, I lived there until I was about eight. And then my family moved to Vermont to Essex Junction, and I actually, went, one thing that was a real hallmark of my childhood is that I was a child when Bernie Sanders was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. And I would say that definitely had a very strong impact on me. Wow. And on a lot of people from my Gen X generation that grew up <laughs> during that time. So um, my family moved quite a bit and we actually moved to Plattsburgh, New York. I went to high school there for two years and then we went back to Vermont um, my dad had some career, unexpected career changes. Mm -hmm. And so I got really used to talking to lots of different kinds of people and moving around and making new friends because I think I went to four different school systems in my <laughs> right. um, elementary, middle and high school life. So that's where I grew up. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, so you're moving around a lot. Obviously that means you had to be pretty adaptable. How did that, you, you touched on being able to talk to very different people from all different areas. How did that really help you evolve growing up as a kid? Well, I definitely saw, especially the, the move that we did in middle school as an opportunity for reinvention. And I recently found <laughs> journals I had written as a 12 year old where I was absolutely thrilled about moving away from um, Essex Junction, Vermont, where I was in middle school because I was a very nerdy child. And I was like, just like Madonna, I'm going to reinvent myself. Did you write that? <laughs> I did actually. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. Um, so, and I would say that uh, 
it wasn't always easy. I was definitely kind of a nerdy child and um, didn't always get along with kids my age until that move when I was in eighth grade. And I just, I don't really know exactly how it all came to pass, but I just decided I was going to really try to make friends and understand like who the people were and Mm -hmm. just, um, I always was a creative person and I had music and drama and chorus and I tended to make friends who were in those types of creative endeavors and yeah honestly that was how I made friends and I also um I actually tried out for cheerleading when I was in ninth grade and I made different friends from that and it was I actually got really supported it's kind of funny people think of it as like a mean girls kind of a thing sometimes but yeah um, the girls that I was cheerleaders with when we were teenagers were actually really nice women and that was when we lived in Plattsburgh and I they wanted to help me like you know learn how to do the moves and we practiced together and we had so much fun so I've had a lot of different interests and um I'm just really I I just feel like those moves really kind of forced me to have to adapt to making new friends and being Mm -hmm. with different kinds of people so that makes a lot of sense and I've been through a similar situation where I mean I moved around a lot in the same area when I was a kid but I definitely had those situations where I I moved to a new town when I was 14 and completely had to um reinvent myself or have this new lifestyle I don't think I had to had to reinvent myself it was this opportunity where I was like people don't know me since kindergarten I can I can do this and I think we talk about female allyship a lot on this show and it sounds like you had a good experience after a different transition in your life with female female allyship. Is that the case? Mostly. I would say that particular example of that, the women that I made friends with from eighth and ninth grade, I just really happened to, um, I think I had a pretty good sense for knowing who my friends could be at that point, having, you know, been through a couple of situations where I tried to make friends with people I didn't have very much in common with yeah. um, from the past. You you know, eventually you adapt and learn. And I feel like um, female allyship was definitely present in that, yeah. that group of friends. So um, I think that's wonderful. And um, I love that there's kind of this stereotype around cheerleaders that you, but you are telling me that really broke for you. Um, and that I think that stereotype is, you know, coming from a lot of uh, people who maybe don't have the best experience with female allyship around maybe a popular group of people as cheerleaders are usually portrayed to be. Um, can you talk about when you transitioned out of moving around and maybe you found stability or maybe you didn't in one place, but kind of your next chapter? Sure. So um, one of the things that happened was our last move was actually not a super happy one for me at the time when we moved back to Vermont and I didn't want to go back because I had all these friends from upstate and um, I felt like I I was ready to leave high school by the time I was probably a junior. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really felt like I wanted to move on. And one of the things I did was that I applied to Boston University and I applied to a few other schools, um, Northwestern and University of Vermont. And I was really bound and determined to go somewhere new because I just felt like I needed to be in a city. I had considered an acting career at one point, and I was thinking about going to the School of Fine Arts at BU. But um, the last move we had was just sort of challenging for the whole family. And I, um, I wasn't really in a place where I could get it together to 
to, to get an acting portfolio or anything like that. Right. But I did get into BU and I got a huge financial need-based scholarship to go there. Wow. So that was my next chapter was um, getting into BU and getting money to go there, which was really important. I couldn't have gone if I hadn't gotten the financial needs-based scholarship. Right. And my freshman year at BU was very much... I rocked my world on a number of levels because I met people from all over the world internationally. I had friends from Mexico, Dubai, um, all over the place um, from communities I had no contact with in the past. And that's, it was a little overwhelming at first, but it's funny because the friends I made my freshman year in my dorm at BU are still friends today. A lot of them, we lost touch for a while, but that was my next chapter. I was an English major at BU and I ended up leaving that, which is kind of funny because I've always written. I've always enjoyed writing. Yeah, that's I was, so interesting. <laughs> I was always told I was a good writer, but they it was very academic. I remember the teacher, the professor talking about the notion of chiasmus in this novel and that novel. And I don't know, that didn't resonate for me. So mm -hmm. I ended up becoming a psychology major instead. And that's kind of what set me on my original career path of social work, um, yeah. which is kind of how that played out. <laughs> I want to talk, so I want to kind of go back to um, this transition that you had in your freshman year and these friends that are your friends um, to this day. It seems to me like this transition really left a mark on you and you became more of who you are and would you I mean can you elaborate a little bit more on that well um my freshman year as I said I was on a scholarship and Boston University is kind of known for being a place where I'll, at that time a lot of wealthy people went to school there and mm -hmm. I was not one of those people and that became very clear to me right off the bat and um people would even say comments like oh people shouldn't get financial aid to come to this school it was like 1988 and wow. a lot of people wanted to be like Gordon Gecko on Wall Street and that was kind of what I got exposed to and I remember feeling very like like an alien like I'm <laughs> I'm from Vermont I don't belong here this is a a strange um place for me to be but I I guess there was a whole search that I did for like it, it's funny the first people that I met from my dorm ended up being really close friends for like life and wow. that they were not necessarily all from one particular class of people. But um, I would say that some of my passion for social justice definitely came from that experience of yeah. sort of people being like, oh, the scholarship child at BU, you know? Right, right. And, um, yeah. I even That's joined a sorority for a while and I was in a sorority and I tried very hard to kind of be nor I really wanted to be like uh, liked and to be popular mm -hmm. and I wanted to sort of have that kind of sorority experience and in the end I ended up not really enjoying it terribly much and ended up connecting a lot more with people from my original friend group from the freshman year. Yeah. So. Well I think that's such an important lesson because um, I had a similar experience when I went to college where you know I had met a group of people in the beginning that I didn't really fit in with. And then there were some people from that group who I clicked with who are friends of mine, very close friends of mine now. And um, I think something that 
you're touching on and kind of going back to the cheerleaders and going back to these um, experiences in your freshman year and people wanting to be Gordon Gecko is really the perception that others have of you and that you have of others. Um, and I love that you said that this relates to your social justice work um, because I'd love to dive into that. And because I know you had an entirely different career before mm-hmm. you started your own company. How did you make that happen? How, what, what career is that? Can you elaborate more? Sure. So after college, I graduated with a bachelor's in psychology and a minor in French, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not, I haven't spoken French in a long time, but I can. And when I'm, I'm going to practice, <laughs> but uh, I moved to San Francisco just because I, I wanted to leave Boston behind and I wanted to have a different experience. And I was really attracted to living in the Bay area for a lot of different reasons And I ended up working for an insurance company that was specific to mental health. It was like an EAP type of company, which it was in the beginning of those type of products being offered. And there were a number of social workers that worked in that company who worked there because it was a higher paying job and they could have health insurance and have a private practice on the side or work on their California licensure. And when I worked in that insurance company, I started out as an executive assistant to the chief psychiatrist, the medical director that ran the company. And I was really impressed with the social workers that worked there. They seemed to be very down to earth people and caring. And they helped me a lot in my job. I worked for kind of a challenging personality. The medical director of that company was kind of known for being um, a tough guy. And I just felt like I'd considered a psychology degree, but it it was actually quite expensive to get a PhD in psychology. And I yeah. was worried about getting a scholarship and making it through the program. And the social work degree was sort of presented to me by my friends from work as an affordable way to get into the field of like psychotherapy and helping profession and all of that kind of stuff. So they inspired me to apply for a master's in social work after I'd been living in the Bay area for about four years and working I also worked in a domestic violence program briefly as an overnight counselor. That was very much a part-time job, but I had that type of experience, but, and also worked for this um, mental health insurance company. And then I applied to a bunch of different master's programs and ended up at Columbia in 1996. And my first internship was the criminal defense division of the legal aid society, where I helped people get into drug treatment programs instead of going to jail. So it was very intense. (laughs) It was way more intense than working for an insurance company. (laughs) Definitely more intense than working for an insurance company for sure. But I also think so much different than your upbringing in general. And it sounds like you had, um, kind of these like, and I think everyone had, most people maybe, I'm not really sure. Um, it sounds like you had these waves of exposure, kind of like, okay, you're moving around everywhere when you're younger, and then you have this wave of exposure to new things in college, which, you know, hopefully people have that experience in college where they're, you know, exposed to all sorts of things. And then it feels like you have this very dramatic exposure to another life, Um and that you rode that wave very, it, I mean, you're working there for four years, but you have a, a very different exposure to social work now in this different way of life, encountering people who are from such different backgrounds than you are. How did that affect you? It affected me very deeply, I would say, because 
um, the first year internship, I actually had some challenges with my supervisor. We weren't the best fit personality wise. And I ended up changing to a different field placement in mid in midstream and had to make up a couple months of time. And so, but honestly, the criminal defense division is probably one of the biggest life experiences that I ever had in terms of understanding what it means to be a person of privilege, actually, and understanding what it means to, you know, help people who have had experiences with institutions for most of their lives and how that's deeply affected them. And honestly, I remember very specifically, I had a woman who was um, a heroin addict and she was nodding in the examination room when we were talking and I didn't know what that was. I had no idea. And um, someone had to tell me. <laughs> someone, yeah. one of the other more experienced people had to tell me and her daughter had come in with her unfortunately was able to explain a whole bunch of things to me. And together we coordinated sending her into a drug treatment program. And honestly, like prison wasn't gonna do anything for her, really just mm. going going into jail and not getting help um, for the drug problem was not gonna be a good solution for her ever. And I could really see how like, oftentimes the prison system doesn't have opportunities for people to really like find a way out and succeed and you know learn a trade or, get help. So actually the program we were, we were part of was really very important. And I think yeah. it did work, even though it was a very challenging way to get initiated into direct care with clients. Right. I learned so much from that experience. So, so. when you started examining privilege mm -hmm. and your own privilege, what started coming up for you? Well, I had an experience with a client and this was a little later on where um, I ran groups and clients, Sometimes when they sense you're kind of this young thing and maybe like a little bit sheltered, they will ask you a lot of questions about yourself. And one of my clients said to me, Miss Carpenter, are you from Connecticut? Do you ride horses? <laughs> and <laughs> and I, it's so funny. I, I have to laugh because I actually I don't do those things. But compared to my clients, like I was clients would bring up issues of race with me all the time. You remind me that I dated this white woman when I was in high school. Um, wow. my, my family, like I was told that my skin was darker than a paper bag and that was a bad thing. And I thought to myself, like, I've never had that experience. And yeah. it was a, a shocker. And actually I got to take the training, the People's Institute um, has this training called Undoing Racism. And one of the agencies I work for did that training. And um, honestly, it, got me to have, I, I, I feel like I have less fragility around being a white person because of that, because I got confronted with that a lot when I was a social worker and clients would want to talk to me about that all the time. And I got to the point where it was like normal, that it was mm -hmm. actually better to have those conversations and put that out in the open and see what their perceptions of me were. And then I could respond to that and not be mm -hmm. defensive about it. So, um, and it also gave me a really deep perspective on racism and how pervasive it is in this country. Yeah. And I became very involved in that People's Institute for a while and brought that training. Um, I had taken it outside my agency and we actually, another woman and I brought it into the agency so that other people could learn from it and address issues of white privilege and mm -hmm. um, 
also, um, we didn't really use the word intersectionality at the time, but that certainly came up as a topic right. among staff who had like different cultural backgrounds, like for example, African-Americans and people from Africa will sometimes have clashes right. over like various cultural things. And that's, that came up too in the, those trainings. Right. I love this so much because it shows that your evolution, um, well, you were, you were put into a situation, you chose to be put into a situation that drastically changed your perspective. And I also love that you, once your perspective was changed, you realized how important it was to then advocate for other people to understand these issues in a deeper way. Uh, was that a vein in your career? And is that something that has come up for you time and time again? Yes. And when I look back at my social service career, I actually think that the People's Institute training and bringing the, that to the agency where I worked at the time was the most important thing I ever did in my social service career. I don't wow. think there's anything else I ever did that was as important as that because there were a lot of unspoken issues in the agency where I worked and um, cultural challenges and lots of fragility. And yeah. I felt like the people in that particular agency, which is um, called the Bridge Incorporated, it's on the Upper West Side and it still exists. And mm. I actually feel that they're very um, good agency and I have a lot of positive things to say about them, but um, they embraced the training and their staff embraced it. And even though it was very hard at times for people to have these open and honest conversations about race, they did it and mm -hmm. they continued to do it. Yeah. And I really felt like, you know, if Debbie and I, I don't know, I don't want to portray myself as, I, I feel like one of the things I've had to learn not to do is to go into the savior complex. And no, of course, I stuff, think, I think but. what is great. No, and I, I'm not saying that. I think that what's great is that you learned something, you realized it was important and you wanted to bring it to other people to learn and not to save them, but just to say, hey, we have some issues here that we need to recognize and understand and we have to be able to process this. And if you're saying that this is the most important thing that happened in your social work career, that's a huge thing because it means that it had such a huge impact on your life and you knew that it was going to be valuable for other people. So I don't think you're... A savior I think you're just you just <laughs> offered value to other people which is great um, if that makes sense I think yeah. um, it does and honestly it's an ongoing process I don't think that like you go to a training and you learn about white privilege and then all of a sudden everything is better no I mean there are always opportunities every single day even on Facebook like people will make comments sometimes that are cringeworthy and I will sometimes say something and other times I will decide carefully if it's, you know, more of a private message situation or yeah. I, it, every day there's an opportunity to address the issue of privilege. Especially I, privilege. Yes, so. I 100% I agree. And I think that it's great that you can recognize that and you can make those statements as a white person and um, have that conversation. And um, what were your, I mean, it just feels like from what you're talking about, you had this like major change in perspective during your career, which is great. And you're open to it. Did you encounter people maybe, I mean, it sounds like you did at work or in your personal life that have not been open to these experiences? Sure. I mean, I would say that um, 
when I worked at that first agency, The Bridge, there were some staff who were very threatened by the idea of discussing these issues, but some of it also had to do with personal experiences of trauma. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, I had to take a step back from you know, being too aggressive about people addressing the issue of white privilege when maybe they were already dealing with some generational trauma that came, for example, from like being a Holocaust survivor or the children of Holocaust survivors. I feel like sometimes those are issues where maybe I would have been wise to have taken a step back, not coming from a particular cultural background. And, you know, that's something that is also like, you have to be a little bit careful sometimes mm -hmm. when you think you're an ally and you want everybody else to like believe what you believe. And then you start kind of <laughs> steamrolling people with your right. SJW stuff. <laughs> and yeah. I would call that. <laughs> so <laughs> well, but, what but I, think I actually, I tend not to care as much about that, but I also do tend to really think about what message is going to be the most effective. Cause I have gone down the path of meeting people over the head with my ideas and it's not always well received and you have to, find a way to get through to different people that is not mm -hmm. necessarily going to be the same tactic for everyone. Right. And I, we talk, we literally talk about this every single episode, but I think what, something you're touching on is vulnerability and people's vulnerability and whether they're willing to be vulnerable about things that don't make them very comfortable and whether you're being able to be vulnerable about things that you're learning and um, the moments that you have to accept that you made somebody uncomfortable. And that's not always an easy thing to accept. Um, yeah. Where I talked about this stuff in such a long time. I have to say, like, it's, <laughs> it's actually really great to be able to talk about it because I feel like people in my BNI world don't really know this about me. They don't know, like, a lot of my past background. So, Well, I love talking to you about this, and I find it fascinating because I think it directly correlates with so many of our current moves that we make in life. I mean, you had an entirely different career. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think it's really important to talk about that. I want to talk about what shifted in your career uh, to, you know, push you to start your own business. Sure. So um, I originally started out, I was, a, my first job was case manager, and I went to people's apartments. In fact, some of the apartments I used to go to are really close to my, my actual apartment right now. <laughs> Where do you um, live? Washington Heights. So right. I would visit people and our clients had been in psychiatric hospitals. And so if they were in a, what we call a scattered site apartment, that means that they're doing well, that they're able to take their own medications They They might need some help with what they call ADLs, activities of daily living, like cleaning yeah. up their apartments. And sometimes they just really needed companionship, honestly, like the, and someone to look, just look in on them and make sure they were okay. Um, so that was my first job, but I learned very early. I seem to have had a knack for administration and I would describe myself as a person who was like an, I don't know, intrapreneur maybe. <laughs> I would, <I'd laughs> Please <like> elaborate. <laughs> I like to bring innovation and change into the places where I worked. And so I knew very early on that becoming a private practice therapist wasn't going to be my path. And I got promoted really early in my career to a job where I was training the staff how to use the computerized charting system. And I liked doing that. I liked teaching people stuff and it was fun. And, I, and the staff often, you know, didn't really want to learn the computerized charting system. They want to talk to the clients. So I would try to find ways for them to learn it so that they could, you know, that would become automatic and then they could do their work with clients. Yeah. 
And so over time, I ended up getting promoted into director level roles. I was director of quality improvement for one agency um, where we would make sure our programs, if they got audited by the state, would pass the audit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I also got, I ended up in more of a learning and development type of a role because of that interest in teaching people how to do things. Um, one of the agencies where I worked had been doing all of their training of the staff who were spread out on all the boroughs. All of it was being done in person by HR folks who didn't have the time to do all of that in person, all the OSHA trainings, all of the, the stuff that in social service agencies, as you know, probably from your experience with neighbors, yeah. neighbors together, the huge amount of training that has to be done of the staff that's required by law. It's not, it's mandatory in, right. in a lot of places. I implemented an, a computerized charting system for people to be able to get that training out of the way online and not have to do it all in person and we still did in person training but you know sometimes people are a little bit afraid of change and I would say that I was always especially pushing for technology innovation I always really wanted um, there to be an easier way for people to do things and it wasn't always viewed that way but right. oftentimes I would be able to convince people that it was you know something that was useful and needed and in fact the agency where I used to work where I implemented the e-learning program, I was having a, a call with an old coworker of mine and she said, you know, actually nowadays we're really glad we have that charting system or the e-learning system that you implemented because no one can meet in person to do training. So, so this like, is now, oh. now you're yeah. hearing this, but back then you <laughs> were feeling later. a lot of, you were feeling yeah. a lot of resistance to that. Yes. And, um, I was often that person that wanted change and for things to be done differently. And so I think I had always had an entrepreneurial mindset. And after a while in the nonprofit world, it became honestly very tiring to be that person who is pushing yeah. for change and always having to kind of convince people to see it my way. And um, I started to become, I, I was in the field for 20 years and I really did yeah. had some really interesting projects I work on that were innovative, but the last the last two years, I actually did a, this is like a whole other tangent we could go on, but I did a women's empowerment program called I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did a women's empowerment program where, long story short, I started to realize that I was really not happy in my career mm -hmm. and that I really wanted to make a change. And that part of what was making me feel unhappy was that I always felt like I was like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the mountain, that right. I wanted to make change and that change is just so slow often in these agencies and I know that that's not just in agency work it's in other places too yeah and I just started thinking I really want to do something different with my life and originally I thought I would go into corporate learning and development and I had some great interviews one of my best I'd say one of the coolest jobs I went for was uh, the learning management system administrator at Etsy the company in Brooklyn. I really yeah. wanted to work there. It did not work out. And actually there were a lot of corporate changes later. I would have been laid off eight months later anyway. So it kind of worked out, but, um, it, I wanted to work for like a startup or a cool type. But you've, you felt role. like, right. You felt like you had that, you know, so, okay. You felt like you had that change in that career path in mind, like the, the yes. change in mind. What drew you to that program that you signed up for? That Mama helped. Yeah. So number one, what's it called? And then what drew you to it in general? 
It's called Mastery, and it's um, Mama Gina School of Womanly Arts is the name of the um, the organization, and it's run by a woman named Regina Thomas Shower, who's also known as Mama Gina. So, mm-hmm. um, I think I had a friend who did it, who did the program, and she had like a taster on a weekend type of thing where you go and pay sixty five dollars, and it's a day long workshop. And um, one of her big focuses is helping find helping women figure out what we want, what we desire, and how we can have more pleasure in our lives in many mm. different ways. And I realized that I really was like, like starving for pleasure in a lot of ways oh, in yeah. life. And the job was just one aspect of that. There was like way more to it than that. But I felt like like my job really started to feel like a drudgery. I started really dread, dreading getting up in the morning to go to work and one of the places I worked had a big ethical scandal. I was gone after that happened, but it really was very disillusioning to see a nonprofit social service agency have such an ethical scandal that they were on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. And um, I was very idealistic when I started the field. I, was, I, was, I never would have imagined that a social service agency could be corrupt, but I think that unfortunately I learned that they can be. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> like any you... corporation. Right. <laughs> It so, sounds like you had that clash of, um, of thinking something was wrong, but maybe not necessarily believing that because that's not what you want to believe about your workplace, but knowing it and then also personally not finding any pleasure in your role and in personal aspects of your life. What was that program like for you? And, and like, how did that, like, what are some things that you learned? Okay. So I went to the program the first day with some friends of mine. It was the taster. And by the end of the first, I'm, I'm not a big joiner. I want to say this, like, I'm not a big guru person. I don't, I'm not <laughs> super religious. I, and by the end of the first hour, I was like, I need this, whatever this is, like, I need to mm. do it. And I just knew like in, in my gut that I had to do it. What and, about it made you feel that way? Um, well, first of all, a lot of women that had gone through the program gave testimonials about what their life was like before and after and why it had helped them. And it was very convincing because those women were from a lot of different backgrounds. They were not all one, like, like they weren't all wealthy. They weren't all mm-hmm. white. They were not all like a monolithic group of people. It felt pretty real. It felt authentic. It didn't feel like it was just put on for show or something like that. And Um, I also, they taught us a couple of things. There's something called a Trinity in the Mama Gina community where you, you brag, you express a gratitude and you express a desire. And a lot of women are not taught to brag about our accomplishments or to say like that we, it's sort of like being, people think it's not being humble or being arrogant if you brag, but really if we, if we express the, um, the great things in our lives, it gives other people, not just women, permission to say the great things they're doing. And it raises the energy. It raises the vibration. It's not about like, you know, I'm better than you. It's yeah. really like, like, I brag, I changed careers after 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it shatters that not- narrative that we're taught. <laughs> and um, a gratitude would be like, I'm so grateful to Christina for inviting me on the podcast today because she's an amazing woman and we get to have talk about an aspect of our lives we don't get to discuss in our networking Hmm. group every Tuesday. (laughs) And a desire I would have would be like that our business grows over the next Mm -hmm. 
year and that we increase our income by a certain amount or, you know, you could have a desire be about the world. Like, you know, we all come out of the pandemic, like with a different perspective. So yeah. the whole, she taught us some practical tools in that workshop that I seemed really useful to me. And it, also there's a lot about the body in the Mama Gina program, about expressing emotions through your body and playing what we call all 88 keys of the piano. Um, so joy, sadness, anger, all of the emotions that it's okay for us to express those things. And there, she has a tool for expressing anger called a swamp, which I'm not going to get into detail about right now, but it gives you permission to scream and cry and mm. be cathartic with a whole group of other women. <laughs> and honestly, that was very, I, I don't know. I just felt like from that first workshop that there were tools in there that were somewhat missing in therapy that I had had because I've had right. a lot of therapy actually. And therapy is a lot of talk often. And although that's changing, there's more modalities available and talked about. I find that moving things through my body is very important in order mm. to grow and process. And sometimes emotions can get stuck in your body. And I don't know that I had that advanced of an understanding of that when I first went to her workshop, but I knew that what she was doing was different from a traditional therapy and it felt real and authentic. And they also didn't really push me to sign up super hard. They did offer yeah. a good discount if you signed up that day, but <laughs> I never felt like it wasn't like a hard sales pitch. Like, yeah, it was, well, it was very feminine oriented, very oriented towards the feminine. And I never experienced anything like that before. And it's honestly, it's changed my life. It's one of the reasons I left and started a new career, like facing that. Mm. And um, I made some changes in my relationship life as well. So that's like a whole other topic of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other hour of this show. No, yeah. I, I love, first, I, I love the tool that you just gave our listeners of the brag, the, the Trinity, brag about something, offer gratitude, and then state a desire. Um, I would definitely encourage everyone to use that because I think you're totally right. There's this narrative that we're taught that if we brag about something, if we share our accomplishments, um, that we're conceited or we're having a big head or, or we're just, you know, it's not always seen as the best to be confident. And I think right now is a moment where a lot of women are shattering that narrative and what a gift that you received in that group mm -hmm. the first time you went there to see that and connect with it. Um, so you could take this next step in your journey. I also think what you touched on around authenticity is super big because if you had not felt like this was an authentic program that you could have participated in, you probably would not have had this experience and changed your career path. And I really respect that because I know you personally are not a fan of like salesy pitches. Like I just <laughs> knowing you, I know that about you. Um, so when you went through this process and you had all these changes, like you're saying in your relationship, in your life, um, when did you leave your job? So it was, I had, I was director of learning and development for a nonprofit for five years. And then a friend recruited me to come work for him doing um, integration of an electronic health record in a big social service agency. And I was there for about a year and I left in... December, 2018, I think I was there for a year and, you know, they 
it just, it was really just about me recognizing that this was another innovative project that was going to require a huge investment of my time and energy. And it felt like it was sucking the life out of me. Wow. Um, and I just knew that it was, didn't feel right for me. It was actually, it's funny. I'm friendly with the woman who ended up taking over that role. And she wrote to me and told me she had gotten it. And I was very happy for her because it seemed like a better fit for her and her personality and what she wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I support that. I just knew that this was it after like, I knew after about six months that it, it was the wrong job for me. And I even talked to my boss about it. And eventually I made the decision to leave. And what happened is I actually didn't have much of an agenda at that time. Um, but a chance, well, it wasn't really a chance meeting, but uh, a, a friend of mine, a colleague who owned his own tech company and I had drinks like for networking purposes. And he said, he's a very entrepreneurial minded person. And he said to me, you ever thought about you and Charles going into business together? Mm. And I had taken a web development class just like on the weekends. And we were considering, we talked about it. Charles also had a history as a programmer. He worked for Time Warner and when Time Warner merged with AOL and all of that, he'd worked as a programmer and he was a writer as well. So this friend of ours said, why don't you get consider getting the business since you're like the extrovert or more of the extrovert than Charles and Charles does some of the writing or does some of the website work. Cause we originally conceived of ourselves as doing websites and maybe doing some writing as well. Um, but long story short, what ended up happening was he hired us to do the social media for his company and to do some blogs and, that is how the business got started was because of this friend who was very entrepreneurially minded mm-hmm. and also a male friend. I want to emphasize cause you know, he was like very, I would say it was normally not something I would have considered doing. And I felt like, you know, he is very much a go-getter in a way that, um, you know, I guess women aren't always trained to be like that. And I certainly wasn't right. Trained. To be well, like that. <laughs> well, I think what you're also saying, because we've talked about female female allies on this show where um, like Tracy, who was on the show, she talked about how Jen Gittimer invited her to our chapter as she was starting, just starting out her business and had no idea what she was doing. I think it just depends on the person. Um, but it does sound like that entrepreneurial go-getter spirit is the same thread between those two people. I think maybe what you're touching on is your, um, maybe your personal, uh, desire to not necessarily take that huge step in that moment, but somebody pushing you. Well, I would say that I was suffering from imposter syndrome because even though the female allies in the Mama Gina community were like always very positive and supportive, like you can do this, like, do you want, you know, put, you know, you, you can change your life. It was actually the final push really came from my friend, Josh, who said to me, you know, it's, you you can do something new. Like I always felt like I had to have a degree from Harvard and I had to have like, you know, uh, 10 million years of experience before I would start my own business. And I had all of these barriers built up in my mind and, you know, Josh was just sort of like, just do it. Like, what could it hurt? You know, you might as well try. And honestly, I feel like this is also how men and women are socialized a little bit differently to go for it or, you know, be super qualified maybe when, 
you know, we always feel like we have to be overqualified and men often will apply for a job even if they don't even have 50% of what's oh, on yeah. the job I mean, <laughs> but, Yeah. But I learned something from that. And honestly, that was the start of the business. And so I had written before like curriculum development and stuff like that. And I've always considered a good writer by my peers. And I wrote things for my bosses a lot of times, but Charles actually had the formal experience in journalism working for the New York times and all of that stuff. So um, we started with that one client and then we started to put feelers out there in the world to get some more clients. And eventually that's how we made our way to connect 70 to BNI. And it was the beginning of our business. We had been in business about a year when we came to mm. chapter and um, we've actually refined what we offer. We are not doing website services at this point. Um, we are doing writing because that's what we're good at. And it's like our niche, our specialty. And that has also been a process to sort of yeah. refine that. I love this so much. I, th- I want to touch on the, um, the go-getters versus being versus imposter syndrome a little bit more because, um, you know, I know in lean in that is a lot of what they talk about in that book. Um, and a lot of what Charles Sandberg talks about when men are hired for their potential and women are hired based on their experience. And that is something that I know I personally had some, mental blockers with around you looking for jobs where I don't have the experience, but I have the potential. And and that's a very scary thing when you're going out on your own, I can't imagine, because you have to fully embody your potential and believe in that potential. And um, then to have your business change, how over the past, you know, over that past year, when you were going through that evolution, what did you learn about yourself now that you were actually taking action? Um, I learned about myself, honestly, that just do it. Sometimes you really just have to do it and see how it turns out and refine it from there. I can be a perfectionist. And even just recently, I was invited to be on that panel. Um, Some of our members of our group were invited to be part of a panel called What the Future and I was going to do a presentation on sensitive social media. And I, there were some last minute changes and I was going to back out because I didn't feel I was ready. And mm. then a couple other members of our group, like Trisha Tate, who's you know the CFO of Art of Money Matters, an amazing businesswoman for many mm-hmm. years, was like, you know, it's not a big deal, Laurel. It's like a five minute presentation. You can do it. <laughs> like, and I got you know, talk about female allyship. I felt like a lot of the women in our group are amazing at that, honestly, really amazing at it. And I felt like, just do it. You know, if it doesn't, if, if I get feedback that I need to change something, then I will adjust. But I sometimes get hamstrung by my perfectionism. And that is something I've been working through, like being less afraid to put things out there and to go after maybe clients that I wouldn't have thought we would, would be possible for us to get. And honestly, I have found that reliability follow through are like, and quality and personal service. Those four things are so important when you're running a business. And I think we provide all of those things. And we've been told that by people that we've worked with. And, um, I think that honestly, just it's like almost like old fashioned, like I feel like these days and just doing what you say you're going to do and being reliable and, those are all things that count so much when you're an entrepreneur and when you're serving people, it really matters. 
And yeah. sometimes it matters more than being like the absolute best in the business or having 20 years experience. Sometimes that follow through reliability is more important than anything else. Right. Well, you're talking about relationship building and the fact that if somebody finds you reliable, you're giving something to a customer that they can rely upon. You're, you're bringing value straight to them. I mean, talk about this kind of weaving of your experience. You're always trying to find ways to bring value to people, including yourself. And now that you're you know, the head of your own business, your own company, that is a lesson that's stronger more than ever. And so it's so great that you're learning that. Um, Where do you think those moments of like those blocker moments come from for you? It's from the past, honestly. It's from like, you know, I... I remember that I thought I wanted to be an actor and I have actually some background in training in that. And I remember just having a, had a couple of experience where I didn't get into a show or I didn't get into a group or being told by like extended family members that, you know, you shouldn't, have, I was actually told by a family member, you shouldn't apply to Boston university because your parents can't afford it. And mm. basically being told like, you're too big for your britches, girl. <laughs> you know, don't, don't go there. And that happened a number of times, like to me over my life. And sometimes those voices, you know, the stuff that happens in childhood, it sticks with you for a very long oh, time. Oh yeah, if of you, course. Even if you've done a ton of personal growth, growth work, which I have probably spent so much money on therapy mm-hmm. and growth work, but right. it's, well, um, I try to like draw upon those tools when that happens mm-hmm. and try to um, access that when those blockers come up, as you put it. So. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is um, really that being kept inside a box, your voice not being um, really allowed to speak in the way that it wanted to speak. And um, I think so many women deal with that. And um, I also know you have this other side to you that's very creative. And, and, and you know, when I think of Pearl Consulting, I think like business laurel and like very creative, but you have a very artistic side to you. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what that looks like and how you express yourself? Um, sure. So um, I want to say something about my family in that regard. So my, my mom was actually a professionally trained oboist and her brother um, was a professor at Juilliard of, in the Juilliard uh, cello program. And there's a lot of musicians in my family. And I was a trained violinist as a child. I played from fourth through 10th grade and I was in the Vermont Youth Orchestra. But um, I'm grateful for the lessons. I really am. But I always really wanted to be in musical theater (laughs) and also rock and roll. I always love rock and roll. So those are like, I was, I I sang and I played the violin and I was in musicals in high school. And I was even in a um, professional or I would call it a semi-professional production of Sweeney Todd when I was in high school that was run by members of the New York Shakespeare Festival. And um, that was pretty cool. Actually, it was in upstate New York. And so I've, I was trained as a musician when I was younger and I sing, but now as an adult, I, I went through a period where I stopped doing all of that stuff. I felt um, just, I wasn't feeling it. I didn't really want to do classical music and I wanted to try something different, but I, I don't know. I just, I lacked the courage to try like singing some other kind of music. And in the last 
five or six years, I actually went back and decided to pursue learning jazz vocals. And that has been an amazing experience because I was, that was not a modality I was trained in at all. And so um, I took jazz voice lessons for quite some time and have actually, I'm in an amateur band that I, um, is part of my swing dance community. And because um, you're also part of a swing dance community, <laughs> also part of a swing dance community. And how that came to pass was that when I lived in San Francisco in the Bay area in the nineties, I got, um, talked into taking a salsa lesson by some friends of mine. And I just really loved it. I thought it was fun. I was terrible at it. I couldn't feel <laughs> beat. And the partner dancing thing, I was very stiff and anxious, but I really loved it. And I was like, there's something here for me. I have to explore this. So um, I didn't pursue it for quite some time, but after I graduated from Columbia in 98 and I started taking dance lessons at um, uh, Dance Sport. That's the name of the studio. That's where I started. And I took some salsa lessons and I took some swing lessons and I think I even went over to Dance Manhattan at one point and took a swing dance crash course. And I went on a date with this guy I met at the crash course to the greatest bar on earth in the World Trade Center. And we went swing dancing and it was kind of funny, but I really wanted to learn partner dance. And I started with salsa and then um, uh, I dropped it for a number of years. And then I had this boyfriend in 2006, 2007, who was really into the idea of us doing some kind of partner dance as a couple. And I was like, oh, this is the first time I've ever dated anyone that wanted to partner dance. So <laughs> we went and took um, some lessons at Sandra Cameron Dance Center, which is where um, a famous Lindy Hopper named Frank, Frankie Manning had taught lessons. And mm -hmm. for some reason, it started to click a lot more this time when I took the partner dance lessons. I loved the swing music and the instructors were great. And we had couple friends that we made in the class that we would go out for drinks with. And so I started swing dancing pretty late in life. I think I was 36 when I started to take the classes. And one thing I learned is that, you know, a lot of times when, you know, couples will come to partner dance and they'll take a few lessons for a wedding and then they'll, they'll stop. Mm, I ended up yeah. working at uh, Dance Manhattan studio for a while at the front desk. And this is what I learned. And then you have like, women who have a dance background who come in and they all immediately look great. Like when they're starting to partner dance and yeah. it up really fast. I wasn't one of those people. I didn't fit any of those categories. I started dancing with my ex, my now ex. He was after a few months, he stopped being interested and I kept going because mm. we broke up and I felt kind of lonely. And one thing about partner dance that's really notable is that you, um, a lot of people do it because of the aspect of getting to touch someone and getting to be close with someone in a safe, hopefully safe way. And sometimes um, it's just a, an opportunity for human contact. And um, I kept dancing because I was feeling lonely after this breakup and just yeah. wanted to learn more. And that's actually how I met Charles it was about six months after the breakup. We were, um, we were at an event called the Jazz Age Lawn Party, which is held in the summertime in New York. It's everybody gets dressed up in 1920s clothing and 30s clothing yeah. and dances. And Charles and I became friends. We were friends first, and we met um, our friend Felice Amara, who's a swing dancer, who's also um, a friend of mine from my women's community. She um, and she sort of we were in line and he came over to talk to us and he just seemed like a nice guy and we became friends and that's kind of 
how it's all started was from swing dancing. <laughs> I love that so much because, you know, you weren't going in looking for any sort of romantic relationship or you just enjoyed it. And you went in with a partner, you didn't have a partner and you stuck with it because you enjoyed it. And I think that is really such an embodiment of, you know, doing things that make you happy and continuing to do them because they make you happy. Um, before we wrap up, can we talk really briefly about S Factor? Of course we can. <laughs> and how you found, uh, what is S Factor? So S Factor is a feminine movement studio that encourages women to be empowered and sensual in their bodies. And we teach um, embodied feminine sensual movement. And that includes pole dancing. It includes um, working with the chair in lap dance. And it also includes floor work. But what makes S Factor really unique is that it is really about embodiment and empowerment. There's no mirrors in the studio and all the classes are done in this red glowy light. And it's not a place for performing for men. It's really a place, a safe space for women to go and explore empowered embodied movement. And I got into S Factor because of the Mama Gina community, because mm. Mama Gina will have people do a kind of performance, what they call an entrance in the beginning of her of her workshop, of her mastery workshop. And um, a bunch of women came from S Factor and did uh, what we call an entrance. And what really struck me about them was that the women were all different ages, all different races, all different cultural backgrounds, shapes, sizes, and ages. And they were, you know, rocking their sensuality. They were just so comfortable with their bodies. And when I saw that, I was like, that I need, I need that in my life. I need to yeah. feel comfortable in my movement because when I had studied acting, I was and dance, I was told I was really stiff and I was uncomfortable in my body. I had a lot of shame and I felt like when I started taking classes at S factor, it really helps a lot of women to melt their, their body shame. And yeah. I've, took it for five years and I became an instructor and I still, I'm teaching classes virtually now and I have been um, teaching there for over a year now. And I am very grateful for that experience because I think it's really helped me to feel more comfortable and relaxed in my body in ways that nothing else I've ever tried has. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah. You can hear it in your voice and you can see it. It makes you so happy. And I think the theme of a lot of what we've been talking about as we wrap up is you're very open to new experiences and you're very open to learning and to seeing ways that you can provide others value and value for yourself. Where does this desire to learn and this openness come from and how can others embrace that? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I've always been curious and my mom is a very curious person. I would say that like, if you ever meet her, I hope you do someday. She's just got like a childlike enthusiasm for everything and everyone. And whenever I would have friends come over to the house, she'd want to know everything about them. I used to find it really embarrassing, but now <laughs> as an adult, I actually see that she's just really, she's really open to new people and experiences. And um, she, I'd say, actually, I probably get it from her from my mom so and I've also had a lot of experiences like I said of moving around and having to make new friends and mm -hmm. um, I'm just a curious person <laughs> and yeah. I will I've often found that like like when I went down the path of learning swing dancing I was pretty terrible at it in the beginning and 
I kept going because I just, I don't know, I felt like there's something here for me. I can learn something, even though I'm not very good. And I met Charles from doing that, right. you know, it's like, and not only that, I also became a much better dancer. So I've just learned over the years that sometimes when you do have curiosity, that there's like a lesson there in it for you. And if you stick with it, you never know what's going to turn up in your life. You'd be surprised. So yeah. oh, I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. And I'm so grateful for your curiosity and for your exploration of yourself and of the world. And thank you for sharing all of this with all of our listeners and me. And I'm just so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Laurel. I am so grateful to be here. It was wonderful talking to you about all of these things. You too. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you um, and talk more about what you do and your journey in Pearl Consulting? Great. Um, you can contact me at laurel at pearlconsultingnyc.com. Our website is www.pearlconsultingnyc.com. And we're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn with that name. So it should be pretty easy to find us. Or you can just look <laughs> me up, Laurel Carpenter, on LinkedIn and connect with me there. And I'd be happy to. Beautiful. And if you want to find more about the Growing Women podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and hopefully now Spotify by the time Laurel's episode comes out. Um, we're working on it, so bear with us. Um, and you can find us on Instagram at Growing Women Pod. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here, Laurel. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure.